0: Welcome to Change Catalysts at the Growing Edge with your host, Carol McClelland Fields. Within each show, Carol and her guests explore topics that give coaches, healers, and other change catalysts new concepts, tools, and insights that open up opportunities to flourish personally, professionally, and financially, and now your host, Carol McClelland Fields.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Carol McClelland Fields, your host. In this episode of Change Catalysts at the Growing Edge, my guest Mary McGill and I will be exploring ways for people to transform anxiety into inspired action. Anxiety is an interesting topic because many of us don't want to admit that we're anxious. We don't want to say that we're experiencing anxiety in our businesses. Perhaps our clients aren't able or willing to share that with us as their practitioners. So this conversation with Mary is to bring anxiety into our conversations and raise our own awareness about this important topic for ourselves and with our clients. Mary offers people who are passionate about making a difference in the world, a way to make that difference even in the face of the inner obstacles that naturally arise when answering a call from their heart. She helps them deal with anxiety so that when they need to be most resourceful, they will have access to their gifts. Mary is a licensed professional counselor and certified life coach. Welcome, Mary.
2: Thank you, Carol. I'm really grateful to be here.
1: Yes, we have such a great conversation ahead of us. I wanted to start with your story to help people connect with you and your passions.
2: I'd love to do that. In my first job as a mental health therapist, I was hired to be a counselor in a high school. My fourth year there, they said to me, Mary, we want you to teach a study skills class in a classroom situation to freshmen. I had never taught in my life. In order to keep this job as a counselor, I agreed to teach the class. And every day being in front of that group was horrible. I had so much anxiety one time. One of the kids raised their hand and they said, Miss McGill, Miss McGill, are you okay? You have a really... Red, blotchy rash on your chest. And and it was so embarrassing. (laughs) It was anxiety. So, pretty much when I left that job, I wore any kind of public speaking off. At 34, I was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a horrible experience at first, but it ended up being a positive experience in my life because when I realized that I had this illness and I could die, I began living in a way that I had never done. I had this low-grade anxiety all my life, and it kept me back from taking the risk that my heart really wanted to take. About six months after I completed my treatment, I was asked to speak, public speak, (laughs) at a conference with fellow breast cancer survivors. I immediately said yes. I was so excited about it. And then I realized, I remembered, oh, my God, you know, what did I just do? I said yes to this because of the, the meaning behind it. I felt that I wanted to help breast cancer survivors, and so I moved forward with it. I prepared well. I practiced. And as the days got closer to the conference, I started getting anxious again. And this went on for days. And when I got there, my heart was beating really fast, like out of my chest. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Carol, but Uh just, just, Uh oh, yes. You know, sweaty palms, sweaty, wet palms. No one should shake my hand, kind of embarrassing feeling. And I was worried I was going to forget what I was going to say on stage. I had the talk in front of me and I still didn't think it was good enough. So at lunch, I was With a colleague, and I was telling her this experience, and she said, Well, I'll do it for you if you want. And I'm like, No way are you doing this. I want to really help these women. This means a lot to me. So we're in the conference room, and it's five minutes before I was to be introduced, and I leaned over to her and I said, I can't do this. You need to do it for me. And I gave her my talk.
0: Mm.
2: And I sat and listened to the talk, brokenhearted. Because anxiety had made my decision for me on something that was really, really close. You know, the suffering and the pain that a person with breast cancer goes through. And also the hope that I wanted to offer them, I didn't get to do. So that brought me to really working with the anxiety in a new way. And then I took a training called The Way of the Heart. Because I heard that it helped people with these kinds of things and also was interested in life mission, like, why are you here? I felt like I was holding myself back so much that this deep call in my heart that I'd had for a long time in general to offer something to make a difference in people's lives, it was getting shut off with kind of this general anxiety I spoke about. One day in the counseling room, I'm a therapist, like we said, I had a client say, oh, my husband wants you to come talk to his high school basketball team about the work that you do offering people ways to work with stress and they're all losing and they, they're not liking each other and they're being mean to each other. And he wants you to come speak to them and show them of the work that you've learned through the way of the heart and ways that they can change pretty quickly. So I went, yes. And it was that same kind of yes I did at the breast cancer conference. And I looked over at the person that was sitting next to me, which was me. And I went, why would you say yes? You swore it off. (laughs) Well, this time I had tools and ways to work with it. I did this talk with these kids and it changed their lives. They still lost, but the next day they were talking about love and caring about each other and they were showing the kids some of the energetic techniques that we teach people. They were happy for the rest of the year, even though they lost.
1: Oh, wow. What a great impact you had.
2: Yes, and I was still anxious. It started decreasing and decreasing once I was up there versus increasing and increasing and then freezing the way I used to. So I was grateful to have made that impact.
1: Turned it around for yourself too. I've done similar things where you talk yourself out of something because you've had a bad experience and then you find your way through and it's empowering to make that shift. So how has your journey with anxiety inspired you?
2: Well, it inspired me to help other people. I mean, a lot of people tell me about their anxiety and I love to help people that want to make a difference get out there and do it. I'm really inspired to help people have a way to work with it and not get rid of it Mm. to be successful. Yeah, we have to get rid of that idea of fixing ourselves. And I think if we work with the inner, the outer changes in our lives, and if we keep saying yes, like you were saying, instead of no, I'm not going to do that because of my past. But we keep saying yes to the call of our heart and keep learning tools and ways to work with what gets in our own way. Things work out. We're able to carry out the intentions that are dear to us and to the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, which, which brings us to the next question is, what is your biggest hope with the work you do now?
2: Well, that people who want to make this difference in the world are successful in doing that and do it with joy instead of stress, especially like marketing. (laughs) Like what if we could all do our marketing in joy and not in anxiety or this stress? I really want people to know that it's natural for inner obstacles to arise in any process that is important to them. And that there are ways to work with these inner obstacles so they can move forward with their intentions. I think anxiety causes a lot of suffering and pain, and I'm hoping that some of that can be relieved, that people can do that for themselves. We talked about earlier how I would love to normalize anxiety and take it away from what I call the pathological model where we think something's wrong with us and we pathologize ourselves, going into a lot of shame. And I would love that Anxiety is just one of those inner obstacles that some people need to work with and do that in community and don't do that where people are hiding so much in secret. Yeah.
1: I have had my share of anxiety myself and it is, it's something you try to act beyond. So nobody knows. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure they know anyway. (laughs) But that's the feeling inside is you don't want to show that. And so I love that you are trying to normalize the anxiety. You know, most Mm -hmm. of my work is around transitions. I think very same thing around transitions is that everybody tries to push transitions away or make them go away. And yet they are part of the fabric of life. And part of my work is normalizing our response to transition. So it's a very similar mission we each have, which is to help people see that life unfolds as it unfolds and having the skills and understanding what's happening really helps us move into that flow in a much more gracious way.
2: Yes. Thank you for bringing up transitions because I'm, moved that you're working with people with transitions in this way, because I think that in that middle part, that transition part, uh, between the ending and the new beginning, there is that no person's land, you know, that, that, that can be nothingness, feeling that people have a hard time navigating that at times.
1: Absolutely. And it's full of anxiety what we work with people on to help them understand the journey and understand the parts of the journey so that the journey itself doesn't become part of their anxiety. Sure, there are dark Uh. parts and you have to find your way through those. And there are skills you can learn and probably some of the similar skills that you're teaching. But it's part of the journey is to go into that darkness and come out the other side. And that's what transforms us. And that's what transformed you. You just told us several examples of that yourself. Let's dig in Mm -hmm. a little deeper now. And let's talk more strategically around the types of anxieties that exist. Let's just lay out the landscape for people who may not have thought about anxiety in quite this way before. Okay. There's all
2: these different kinds of anxiety, like you said, that are diagnosed in the mental health community. I'm just gonna go through a few of those to give our listeners the feel for if they're experiencing something or know somebody that is, knowledge can be helpful. Absolutely. Great, so there's generalized anxiety, which is people that feel anxious all the time, even if there's not an upcoming stressful situation in their lives. One of the main symptoms that are very prevalent with generalized anxiety are persistently worrying about something coming up. And the worry is disproportionate to the impact or the actual event. And there's a worry that a person's not going to be able to handle what comes up in life that you were talking about the unknown Mm -hmm. the dark places for others of us the dark places are really the places where light can come in and shine anxiety has us believe that they're scary and unsafe and that we have to figure everything out and have the answers for everything before being able to just rest inside so it's an inability to let that go and It creates a lot of fatigue and muscle tension and, you know, the extreme is sweating and also some irritability. And then there's good old panic attacks. Panic attacks come out of nowhere. And after a while, they are typically triggered by something in our lives. Anyone that's working with people, the earlier that they can refer to a mental health professional if they're not one themselves around panic attacks, the better because they get grooved in like any anxiety. And these can actually be worked with quite well. So symptoms of panic come out very strong. It can feel like you're dying. There's a sense of impending doom or danger, a loss of control. And these physical symptoms are really strong, like the rapid heart rate, pounding of the heart, sweating, trembling, shortness of breath, dizziness, numbness, feeling like you're out of your body. And it's a surreal experience. Typically, you go up and down within 10 minutes. Wow. A friend of mine has panic attacks, and she's a really conscious person who's done a lot of inner work, and she still has them. And she says to her partner, hey, partner, I'm having a panic attack. I'll be there in about 10 minutes. And she gets on the floor, and she just does her breathing and different things that I'm going to be talking about later in the show and doesn't give them energy. That's the best thing to do because if we worry about the next panic attack, that's what creates a lot more suffering, you
0: know, suffering
2: yes. over the suffering. And that's where it becomes like a disorder is when you worry all the time that it's coming.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And then phobias, fear your public speaking, and bridge phobias, and driving phobias. And phobias are an intense fear of something that is more in our everyday life. I, I don't like to say the fear is out of proportion for what it should be, because like, what should things be? <laughs> I mean, someone may have had a bad experience on a bridge, but it does affect them to the point where it limits their life. Yes.
1: There was a lot of that bridge phobia in the San Francisco Bay Area after the big quake in 89, because one of the mm. bridges did fall apart. So there oh. were a lot of who talked about not driving on bridges for years yes. after huh. after that. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you can see how normal situations bring up anxiety and fear and how that really did happen. A phobia would be if someone never worked that out, the bridge is fixed now, and it's a dread that something bad can happen because what you were saying earlier, it happened in the past. Right. So that's what my goal is, is even if bad things happen with people, even really traumatic things, if there's still a call in their heart to do something or have a conversation with somebody, that they have the freedom to choose Mm -hmm. to do that inside themselves. And the anxiety doesn't choose for them. And then, Carol, there is situational anxiety, where situations will bring up anxiety in our lives or we're just going for something big and we're not practiced in something yet or it's something new that we're doing that takes risks. Perhaps that's not full-blown anxiety because it comes in and out, but I'm really interested in that conversation. A lot of people that are out in the world doing things busy and there's still this inner place of unrest that Mm -hmm. can inform us that can be even unconscious after a while and go into the shadows. I think it's important to work with that so it doesn't groove in and get worse in our lives.
1: Yes. I love that term. You've used it several times, groove in.
2: That literally happens. The brain lays down tissue to make it a habit. And then yeah. it gets stronger and stronger. So, And we can do that for the positive parts of our lives as well. And it's not just our brain, but our brain serves our hearts. If we don't have a healthy brain, then it's really hard to live our desires. Yes. So you and I were talking about how we pass these things on through the generations and they go unconscious and we repeat it through the generations this anxiety or any kind of pattern like that. And then people lose choice because they're born around it. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to work with that as well. And you had a really great story when we were preparing that I would love to hear.
1: As I got into transitions, I started paying attention to the transitions that happened in my own story. And my family has always done genealogy. So this is a story I knew fairly early on. It would have been in the late 1800s, and this couple, so it was my grandmother's grandparents, so my great-great-grandparents, they had a little tangle, the husband and wife, about the son going into the city with the father. In the 1800s, that would have been a carriage, most likely, or riding horses or whatever. And when they were in town, the little boy was, I think, nine or ten at the time, and he was shot. By someone who was cleaning their gun. It was a total freak accident, but and the upshot of the story is that the parents ended up separating and never lived together again. It trickled down through the generations. My grandmother's mother was the eldest sibling, so she lived through it. And my grandmother, and then my father, and then my generation, there was always this sense of worry the sense of what's going to happen, the sense of we've got a plan for all contingencies. The worry was pervasive. It was so pervasive the last couple of weeks of both my father's life and my grandmother's life. They both commented about they'd hoped they'd done everything right. So there was this real pressure to do everything right because that decision way back when was not the right decision. And it polluted the family understanding of how things worked. And when my dad was dying, I think it was even on the last day of his life, he shared a story about being in the sand dunes with some kids and he threw a tin can. And it hit a friend of his right above the eye and it really bled a lot. And if it had just been, you know, a quarter of an inch, a half an inch, something like that, it could have blinded the guy. My father, again, held this doing the right thing and always knowing the impact of your choices, your actions. Mm. And that became part of his work, trying to figure out contingency plans for everything. I became very anxious as a child because I wanted to do everything right. And after my father died, I, I had to do a lot of work to unpack that worry part of myself. And it was a long, a long haul, but I did get past that family story and family dynamic that really impacted those generations that followed that event. What impacts me
2: right now as you tell your story is how you were able through a lot of work that you did to break that for the future generations. It's so interesting how things get passed down through generations through these fields that we live in they get passed mm-hmm. down and how you change the information there for the future generations yes so they don't have to live that story
1: exactly it became a very big energy drain for me mm. all of my energy was going toward worry and it's like wait i can't live like this it's and that take energy It does. It takes a lot to try to work it all out and make sure you're doing it all right. and Often the goal around anxiety is to help your clients get calm, but you have a different take on this goal. So I thought it was interesting and would love to hear you talk about that again.
2: I hate it when people tell me to get calm. And i talk talked to a lot of people that might be stressing out about something, and people go, breathe, just get calm. When you put your attention on the problem, I suppose saying get calm isn't the problem. People would get calm if they could at that moment. Yes. I took a storytelling class through Portland Story Theater to improve my public speaking skills. The culmination of the class was telling our story on stage at a real theater with real live audience of people that were not in our class, lights, mics, the whole thing up on stage. It was the night of the performance and that anxiety that I described earlier with the breast cancer conference just filled my body. I was terrified waiting for my turn to tell uh, my story on stage. My heart was pounding so hard. It felt like it was popping out of my chest when I felt like an anxious mess. And I was discouraged because I'm like, I'd done all this inner work and was very surprised that it was that strong. Then I started to get down on myself that I was anxious as I was sitting there, not listening to the other person telling their story. <laughs> and I just noticed how unpresent I became. I was thinking a lot about myself. I'm like, what if I mess the story up? What if I freeze on stage and I make a complete idiot out of myself? And then the if only, like, if mm-hmm. only I prepared more, if only I practiced more, if only I practiced more in front of the camera, only I practiced in front of my neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> better, better, you know? Then I remembered as I was sitting there, a remedy to stage fright that I'd learned and, I said to myself, Mary, don't try to get rid of the anxiety. What you resist persists. Mm -hmm. Let it be and focus on what you do want. My story was an honor to my elderly mother with dementia, and I was sharing a bit about my loss and grief. And also there was a lot of humor in it and the redemption that followed when, like you were saying, being able to grieve and being able to reconnect in a new way with my mom. And it was around Mother's Day that we had this storytelling event, so it was perfect.
0: Mm -hmm. I hoped
2: it would inspire others in the audience that were perhaps struggling with that or different things. And so it was my turn and I was weak-kneed, like shaking on the way up, and I looked out to the bright lights when I started. And the anxiety got worse because I couldn't connect with the audience. I took a slow, deep breath, and I remembered my reason for being there. And my voice was still quivering when I began to tell the story. But as I stayed with it, my heart got way bigger than the anxiety. And I fired people. They came up afterwards. I wanted to be vulnerable. I wanted to talk about the real things in life. Not so much do that in a perfect, polished way, you know? Mm -hmm. And not just people that had moms that they were struggling with, but people were touched by the story and I made a difference in their lives. And I really learned, you know, it's not all about me. (laughs) (laughs) It's about them, you know, when I'm speaking or whatever. It's about them. And that story really changed my life. Like, when we're anxious, think about our why. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing something? Use our breath. I'm going to give everybody a exercise to do that helps us get out of that emergency mode. And focus on our intention, our, our reason for doing it.
1: Very good. Yeah, that's much better than just being calm. It's much more... <laughs> inspiring to feel what you're feeling first off and then find your way through it and then conquering isn't probably the best word but um following through and getting to the other side and feeling the way that you have inspired other people because that becomes a helpful bit of evidence for any time you speak in the future that you already know that you do that
2: yes and then as you go do things as this happened to me then the anxiety is not front and center. Yes, You start to build new neuron pathways in the brain, you start to integrate, you start to really be able to touch into the heart and speak from there, as long as we're doing like the day-to-day things to be able to build on our strengths. Mm -hmm.
1: In the Change Catalyst at the Growing Edge, one of the themes that I think a lot about is the growing levels of uncertainty in our world hmm. not just personally but the things that are happening at the, the regional level the national level the global level and how those circumstances of increased uncertainty are impacting us and i Wondered how the anxieties are showing up. Are they showing up? That's the first question about these greater levels of uncertainty than we have known in the past. And then how are they showing up? So I'm very curious to hear what you're seeing in your work as a therapist. I remember when
2: I was receiving supervision right after 9 11, the whole group said, I have never in my practice dealt with this kind of angst after the Twin Towers were hit. And then it kind of calmed down after a while. And then in the last year, I would say a couple of years, there's a lot of anxiety about things that we never thought of growing up, like all the things that are happening with climate change. And people in their 20s are focused on this and trying to find a way to help. And can feel powerless with that because Mm -hmm. it feels so big Um, and where to start. I think as change catalysts, we have to be aware of this, especially when there's generational differences to ask people what they're concerned about and then to give them ways to work with that powerlessness. Because I feel that when we know why we're here, like we're born for a reason. And when we know why we're here, and then we get on that train to take that journey of who we need to become to do that, and with all the ups and downs, and to be on that journey of carrying that out, it makes a difference, I believe, on a global level. Mm -hmm. I talked with my sister when I was preparing for this, and she's a baby boomer, and so am I. And I said, do you worry about the bigger things? I mean, she's very involved in the bigger picture in her life right now. Her kids are in their very early 30s and she has guilt about it, you know, like leaving a mess for her kids to clean up, that they won't have the future that that she had. Our inability in our generation to address this, she's concerned about her children's children's children. And this wasn't a reality for us in our early lives, in my 30s. So I think it's important to know that there's been studies done and there's more anxiety right now in the U.S. because of this existential anxiety. There's also a term for anxiety around climate but I'm not remembering right now. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, I haven't. I don't yeah I yeah. don't have that name in my head either, but I do know that it is becoming more and more prevalent for good reason.
2: Mhm, yeah, and then, how to chunk things down with people like what can you do? You know their individual self that just being in that truth, if we all did that, it forms a beautiful weaving of all the different pieces that we have that are true for each of us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: so as change catalysts, I think it's important to help people know what that is as well as helping address the anxiety.
1: And I think it's true also that some people may just be living with this kind of fuzzy anxiety and they don't know what it's about. And so just having that conversation to see what the sources are for that anxiety, whether it's close to home, their work, their relationships, or is it, part of the bigger spheres of change that are going on out there where they are feeling powerless and they don't see how to make a difference there. I think that's a really important conversation to have and it may not show up labeled that way. It may need to be yes. surfaced as you talk about what the client is experiencing.
2: Yes, I'm hearing you say to get curious. Mhm. Yeah, to get curious with our clients or people in general. Um,
1: ourselves (laughs) yeah ourselves get curious ourselves (laughs) I love
2: to travel and just have conversations with people on buses and well here too it's really fun to do in other cultures but what if we did that more here yeah to get have curious conversations and and care about others like how are you um, without being invasive like there's a balance there sure sure yeah
1: But I think a lot of people are just in that general buzz in their head and they haven't named it. They don't know what it's about, but it's impacting them. But they're trying to just fix, fix, quote unquote, fix whatever's going on in their immediate life. But that may not solve it because the source of it may be something that's from a broader, more amorphous uh, level.
2: Thanks for bringing that perspective up. And I feel that no matter how big the problem or how powerless we feel, that to stay curious about ways to address that, like you were saying, to become conscious in Mm -hmm. a sense of what's going on with us. And if we're worried about something that feels too big to work with, then that's sort of like the worry of something that we can't change It the courage to change the things I can, what can I do for working with our reactions that flood our psyche and regulate our emotions and find ways to not be reactive? Instead, slow down a bit and be curious and work together. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think awareness also. Sometimes we just try to shut it down and ignore it because it causes us anxiety. But that doesn't really solve anything. We need to name it, face it, see what can come when we're all acknowledging that there is change afoot and what can we do. And there are many yeah. conversations going on around that right now. It's not like we have to start from scratch. There are many people already actively working on this and they're saying, how can people not see this? And I think one of the reasons people don't want to see it is because it causes a thing they see and they don't know how to work with that. And so it's better just to shut the door to it than to look at it, and name it, and to continue to be aware of it so that you can be called to action when something strikes you.
2: Yes, I love that. When something strikes you, you're ready for it. Exactly. Yeah. If you're trying yes. to
1: hide that it exists, then you know, an opportunity shows up and you're not ready because you haven't said hello to the thing that you're anxious about. You're still trying to hide from it.
2: Yes. And you're really holding faith that when you go right into a problem and face it at like the 30,000 foot level, Mm -hmm. like not in a complaining way, but at a higher level, that the answers are there, not to fix it, but to guide us to the next level. But that faith is important. Again, I think of your transition work, Carol,
1: mm-hmm.
2: is that faith in the unknown.
1: Yeah, and how to step into it and work with that and to let it speak to you to show you the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, rather yeah. than saying, oh, that dark place doesn't exist. I want to go over here and just find something to do because it's better than facing this thing that keeps showing up in my world. Yeah, it's what all if, about like, skill building. Yes, can you say more about that? I think it's key. I think much of our culture, kind of like how my family dealt with the death of this uh, boy, was for many years, probably for many people still, it's just to ignore it, shut it down, let it be somewhere else, don't engage in it. There's that denial, that don't talk about it kind of thing. I think there's a whole lot of people in many generations, many cultures, where that's still the mode of going through transition. And so the solution to them is to just ignore it and try to make it not happen. That doesn't really solve anything. It just kind of lets it fester. And then we have other problems because we've got unresolved anxiety or fear or anger or whatever the unresolved emotion is. And so that will keep bubbling up. So the question is, how do we go through transitions in a conscious way and actually heal? How do we move into changes from a place of choice rather than reaction? And that's Mm. at the core of what I've been working on for 25, 30 years now. I saw that with my father's death and my response to it. And I saw that there were possibilities to be more conscious from the get-go and to make choices that were in service of living a better life rather than just waiting until everything was hitting the fan and being forced into taking actions to change our lives. Yeah, where
2: it's just like everything is icky.
1: And then you pass that down to the next
2: generation, the next generation. And then it becomes a cultural issue when it's not addressed. We can say, well, who wouldn't be anxious? And I'm saying, yeah, and there's a bigger way to deal with what feels impossible. Like all the great inventors have always started with something that has never yet been invented. So I just found out, I know this has been going on for a while, that California has plants that are turning salt water into drinkable water. Mm-hmm. And 10 years ago, we were saying, you could never do that. You could never do that. So I think we're brilliant. I would really love to have that mindset and not where you just ignore it, Oh, everything's going to be fine. The anxieties are really work with it well, and then respond to what feels impossible. We have to be conscious and have our whole beings present to be able to have that come through us. I I wrote the experience of what it's like from what I've heard from my clients and also growing up in San Francisco. So I'd like to read that here. Unaddressed anxiety is like living under a dense blanket of wet fog. The light illuminating our vision can barely penetrate its thick white veil. The aha moments that inform our next step cannot get through. Dampening our faith in the unknown. The sounds of nature that feed our souls are silent. And yes. then this more inspiring poem from Mark Twain, who I think has the brilliant answer to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Yes, such a you know, powerful story moment. Really, it is, isn't it?
1: And that's what I help people do, actually, is helping people find their purpose, identify mm, the, the work great. that they're being called to bring forth right now.
2: That, that Everybody has that purpose.
1: We all have a purpose.
2: It's important work. What you're doing It is, yeah.
1: absolutely so yeah. let's talk a little about why is it important i mean we've been talking about it it's important but why is it important to do this work within this anxiety
2: well i feel if we don't everything gets buried into the unconscious it shows up somewhere else it might mm-hmm. come out volcano like or we're just not present for those little miracles that can happen It's hard to work with purpose when the anxiety just gets worse and worse. As change catalysts, we can be aware of our clients and our friends, help people be able to start talking about anxiety so it doesn't get ignored. So it becomes normalized and giving them a safe place to talk, to be curious about what people's fears are and what they're going through. And to just allow people to start talking about it without necessarily giving them answers. And then to ask our clients, like, what's your intention in your life? What is important to you? I'm always asking myself when something difficult is out of my scope of practice. Like, I usually know because I feel something in my body, like an mm-hmm. unrest. So to know as Change Catalyst, when is this anxiety bigger than... The scope of our work, and then how to refer. I, I love working in community. You know yes. where we know different people, and
1: one of my keys with Change Catalyst at the Growing Edge is to bring us together to know that just because I'm not well suited to work with someone in a very high anxiety place, now I know that I could refer them to you, and. Yeah. Sometimes taking care of that anxiety is the thing they need to take care of next so that they can come back to the original coach or practitioner to carry on with whatever their dream is or whatever it, it was that they're trying to achieve. It's building that community of professionals that do things that you don't do. It's not collecting a whole group of similar practitioners, but collecting a group of colleagues who all have specialties that could be helpful to you with the clients that you're not able to work with directly
2: yes and i love that thing of having them see someone else for a time and then coming back and then possibly working together in mm-hmm. our different oh yeah. and not Absolutely. being afraid that there's not enough you know mm-hmm. that we're going to lose our clients but really again it's not about me. It's about focusing on what do our clients need to yes. help them say yes to their mm-hmm. purpose for being here.
1: Yeah, and I've done that many times in my career where I've mm-hmm. noticed somebody with, you know, post-traumatic stress signals or yes. depression or sleep issue. You know, there are all sorts of issues that just get in the way of progressing My work can't work unless the person can progress. So I need to find other resources. So I love that you recommend that we offer our clients two or three different options. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: I think it's more fun going to networking meetings to meet a variety of people. And like you said, have them be part of your community. And find the people like mental health practitioners or maybe it's another coach or Anybody like physicians even I'm learning or starting to go to networking events that have specialties. When we meet all these different people, then we can customize our referrals and give our clients two or three different options. I like to tell my clients to ask the practitioner or the professional if they do free consultations. So then often people do now so that they can call them up on the phone and see if they are match as well.
1: So as we're closing up this conversation, Mary, do you have any tips or strategies for those who are feeling anxious, whether they're the change catalysts themselves or change catalysts are working with clients who feel anxious?
2: I do. I have three things that I would like to offer people that can be used in and throughout your day. You know that response, Carol, that everybody talks about fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa," you know, kind of thing. I've heard that called the emergency response. Become aware when we're feeling like we're in that emergency response, that fight, flight, or freeze. And to know that that part of our brain, that reptilian part, that brings us into fight, flight, or freeze is only there for one reason, and that is to keep us alive, literally. Everything shuts down at that point that isn't that experience. (laughs) It really hijacks us. So to know when that's up, I mean, it can come up very quickly and take our energy away from our intention. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend people do is communicate to that part of our brain that we're actually alive. And the way we do that is to breathe. Because breathing and death don't go together. True, only good reason, point. Right? Yes. The only reason for the fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain, the reptilian part, is to help us be alive. And we used it for so many years for other things, like sitting in the audience. Oh, God, I have to do this perfectly. What if I don't do it right? What if I'm never good enough? Well, we're never good enough anyway, so we might as well not even have that language. Or we're always good enough. or we're We're human beings that are evolving and trying to become conscious and do our best and be conscious of, I think important why we're here and move forward into that instead of like, Oh, I have to do it. Perfect. Say, Oh, my breathing? Wait a second. I'm not, uh, 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 uh. you know, that kind of breathing's happening. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I recommend people slow down their breathing. Count in slowly to a count of four and out on a count of six. And that your reptilian brain can go on vacation and only come up when it needs to keep you alive. After two or three breaths of that, everything else in the brain comes alive. And again, we need a healthy brain to follow our hearts. So the next intention, then, now that we're integrated, is we can now focus on our intention and our why. So again, it's about awareness of when we're in fight, flight, or freeze. Slow breathing to tell ourselves we're alive, we don't need you to show up like that, it's not helpful. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Then we can become brilliant again and those aha moments can come through and the light has been lit and we can see our vision. And then address our why. Is that helpful?
1: Yes, I've never heard it explained that way, but I do really appreciate that because it's an important remembrance that you are not going to be your wise, creative self when you are in that emergency response. In order to go there, you need to breathe and settle into your body again and be alive so that that can turn off. I love that. Yeah, and then all the rest
2: of the brain comes forward again because it shuts off when we're in five bladder freeze, that wise mind and everything shuts down and we're just going to do the opposite. We're going to turn that reptilian brain off and then everything can come alive again.
1: Perfect. As a change catalyst, what do you offer to your clients?
2: Well, I'm in private practice and I do one-on-one therapy and some group therapy
1: What's the best way for people to learn about you and your work?
2: The best way is to go to my website, which is
1: heartscall.com. Beautiful. And I will have Mary's website on my site, and that URL is flourish as a forward slash radio. Mary, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we end the show? Well, Carol,
2: I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I want to acknowledge you for daring to help people go into that dark place and knowing that there's always light that can shine in there and illuminate their path and their purpose. So thank you for doing that work. And I hope that my message also is in service to your audience and to their intentions and the difference that they want to make in the world. So thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for all you've shared today with us about transforming anxiety into inspired action. To explore the resources Mary has shared with us today, please visit my site, flourishasachangecatalyst.com forward slash radio. I will have links to Mary's website as well as all of our previous shows. So thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for more ways you can flourish as a change catalyst at the growing edge.
0: been listening to Change Catalysts at the Growing Edge on InspiredNewsRadio.com with Carol McClelland-Fields. Tune in regularly to hear more ways you can flourish as a change catalyst.